Part 2 of Plan for a Dictionary of English by Samuel Johnson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Plan and Preface for a Dictionary of the English Language by Samuel Johnson. Part two of Plan for a Dictionary of English. Words, having been hitherto considered as separate and unconnected, are now to be likewise examined as they are ranged in their various relations to others, by the rules of syntax or construction, to which I do not know that any regard has been yet shown in English dictionaries, and in which the grammarians can give little assistance. The syntax of this language is too inconstant to be reduced to rules, and can be only learned by the distinct consideration of particular words as they are used by the best authors. Thus, we say, according to the present modes of speech, the soldier died of his wounds, and the sailor perished with hunger, and Every man acquainted with our language would be offended with the change of these particles, which yet seem originally assigned by chance, there being no reason to be drawn from grammar why a man may not, with equal propriety, be said to die with a wound, or perish of hunger. Our syntax, therefore, is not to be taught by general rules, but by special precedents and in examining whether Addison has been with justice accused of a solecism in this passage, the poor inhabitant starves in the midst of nature's bounty cursed, and in the loaden vineyard dies for thirst. It is not in our power to have recourse to any established laws of speech, but we must remark how the writers of former ages have used the same word, and consider whether he can be acquitted of impropriety, upon the testimony of Davies, given in his favour by a similar passage. She loathes the watery glass wherein she gazed, and shuns it still, although for thirst she die. When the construction of a word is explained, it is necessary to pursue it through its train of phraseology, through those forms where it is used in a manner peculiar to our language, or in senses not to be comprised in the general explanations, as from the verb make arise these phrases, to make love, to make an end, to make way, as he made way for his followers, the ship made way before the wind, to make a bed, to make merry, to make a mock, to make presents, to make a doubt, to make out an assertion, to make good a breach, to make good a cause, to make nothing of an attempt, to make lamentation, to make a merit, and many others which will occur in reading with that view and which only their frequency hinders from being generally remarked. The great labor is yet to come. 
the labor of interpreting these words and phrases with brevity, fullness, and perspicuity, a task of which the extent and intricacy is sufficiently shown by the miscarriage of those who have generally attempted it. This difficulty is increased by the necessity of explaining the words in the same language, for there is often only one word for one idea, and though it be easy to translate the words bright, sweet, salt, bitter, into another language, it is not easy to explain them. With regard to the interpretation, many other questions have required consideration. It was sometime doubted whether it be necessary to explain the things implied by particular words, as under the term baronet, whether, instead of this explanation, a title of honor next in degree to that of baron, it would be better to mention more particularly the creation, privileges, and rank of baronets, and whether, under the word barometer, instead of being satisfied with observing that it is an instrument to discover the weight of the air, it would be fit to spend a few lines upon its invention, construction, and principles. It is not to be expected that, with the explanation of the one, the herald should be satisfied, or the philosopher with that of the other. But since it will be required by common readers that the explications should be sufficient for common use, and since without attention to such demands the dictionary cannot become generally valuable, I have determined to consult the best writers for explanations real as well as verbal. And perhaps I may, at last, have reason to say, after one of the augmenters of Fourachier, that my book is more learned than its author. In explaining the general and popular language, it seems necessary to sort the several senses of each word, and to exhibit first its natural and primitive signification, as to arrive, to reach the shore in a voyage. He arrived at a safe harbor. Then, to give its consequential meaning, to arrive, to reach any place, whether by land or sea, as he arrived at his country seat. Then its metaphorical sense, to obtain anything desired, as he arrived at a peerage. Then to mention any observation that arises from the comparison of one meaning with another, as it may be remarked of the word arrive, that in consequence of its original and etymological sense, it cannot be properly applied but to words signifying something desirable. Thus we say, a man arrived at happiness, but cannot say, without a mixture of irony, he arrived at misery. Ground, the earth, generally as opposed to the air or water. He swam till he reached ground. The bird fell to the ground. Then follows the accidental, or consequential signification in which ground implies anything that lies under another, as he laid colors upon a rough ground. The silk had blue flowers on a red ground. Then the remoter or metaphorical signification, as 
The ground of his opinion was a false computation. The ground of his work was his father's manuscript. After having gone through the natural and figurative senses, it will be proper to subjoin the poetical sense of each word, where it differs from that which is in common use, as wanton, applied to anything of which the motion is irregular, without terror, as in wanton ringlets curled her hair. To the poetical sense may succeed the familiar, as of toast, used to imply the person whose health is drunk, as the wise man's passion and the vain man's toast. Pope. The familiar may be followed by the burlesque, as of mellow, applied to good friendship, in all thy humours, whether grave or mellow. Addison. Or of bite, used for cheat. More a dupe than wit, Sappho can tell you how this man was bit. Pope. And lastly may be produced the peculiar sense in which a word is found in any great author, as faculties. In Shakespeare signifies the powers of authority. This Duncan has borne his faculties so meek, has been so clear in his great office that, etc. The signification of adjectives may be often ascertained by uniting them to substantives, as simple swain, simple sheep. Sometimes the sense of a substantive may be elucidated by the epithets annexed to it in good authors, as the boundless ocean, the open lawns, and where such advantage can be gained by a short quotation, it is not to be omitted. The difference of signification in words generally accounted synonymous ought to be carefully observed, as in pride, haughtiness, arrogance, and the strict and critical meaning ought to be distinguished from that which is loose and popular, as in the word perfection, which, though in its philosophical and exact sense it can be of little use among human beings, is often so much degraded from its original signification that the academicians have inserted in their work the perfection of a language, and with a little more licentiousness might have prevailed on themselves to have added the perfection of a dictionary. There are many other characters of words which it will be of use to mention. Some have both an active and passive signification, as fearful, that which gives or which feels terror, a fearful prodigy, a fearful hare. Some have a personal, some a real meaning, as in apposition to old we use the adjective young of animated beings, and new of other things. Some are restrained to the sense of praise, and others to that of disapprobation. So, commonly, though not always, we exhort to good actions, we instigate to ill, we animate, incite, and encourage, indifferently, to good or bad. So we usually ascribe good, but impute evil, to 
Yet neither the use of these words, nor perhaps of any other in our licentious language, is so established as not to be often reversed by the correctest writers. I shall therefore, since the rules of style, like those of law, arise from precedents often repeated, collect the testimonies on both sides, and endeavor to discover and promulgate the decrees of custom, who has so long possessed, whether by right or by usurpation, the sovereignty of words. It is necessary, likewise, to explain many words by their opposition to others, for contraries are best seen when they stand together. Thus the verb stand has one sense, as opposed to fall, and another as opposed to fly. For want of attending to which distinction, obvious as it is, the learned Dr. Bentley has squandered his criticism to no purpose, on these lines of paradise lost. In heaps, chariot and charioteer lay overturned in fiery foaming steeds. What stood, recoiled, or weird, through the faint satanic host, defensive scarce, or with pale fear surprised, fled ignominious. Here, says the critic, as the sentence is now read, we find that what stood fled, and therefore he proposes an alteration, which he might have spared if he had consulted a dictionary, and found that nothing more was affirmed than that those fled who did not fall. In explaining such meanings as seem accidental and adventitious, I shall endeavor to give an account of the means by which they were introduced. Thus, to eke out anything signifies to lengthen it beyond its just dimensions, by some low artifice. Because the word eke was the usual refuge of our old writers when they wanted a syllable. And buxom, which means only obedient, is now made, in familiar phrases, to stand for wanton. Because in an ancient form of marriage, before the Reformation, the bride promised complaisance and obedience in these terms. I will be bonaire and buxom in bed and at board. I know well, my lord, how trifling many of these remarks will appear separately considered, and how easily they may give occasion to the contemptuous merriment of sportive idleness, and the gloomy censures of arrogant stupidity. But dullness it is easy to despise, and laughter it is easy to repay. I shall not be solicitous what is thought of my work by such as know not the difficulty or importance of philological studies, nor shall think those that have done nothing qualified to condemn me for doing little. It may not, however, be improper to remind them that no terrestrial greatness is more than an aggregate of little things, and to inculcate, after the Arabian proverb, that drops added to drops constitute the ocean. There remains yet to be considered the distribution of words into their proper classes, or that part of lexicography which is strictly critical. The important part of the language, 
which includes all words not appropriated to particular sciences, admits of many distinctions and subdivisions, as into words of general use, words employed chiefly in poetry, words obsolete, words which are admitted only by particular writers, yet not in themselves improper, words used only in burlesque writing, and words impure and barbarous. Words of general use will be known by having no sign of particularity, and their various senses will be supported by authorities of all ages. The words appropriated to poetry will be distinguished by some mark prefixed, or will be known by having no authorities but those of poets. Of antiquated or obsolete words none will be inserted, but such as are to be found in authors, who wrote since the succession of Elizabeth, from which we date the golden age of our language, and of these many might be omitted, but that the reader may require, with an appearance of reason, that no difficulty should be left unresolved in books which he finds himself invited to read, as confessed and established models of style. These will be likewise pointed out by some note of exclusion, but not of disgrace. The words which are found only in particular books still be known by the single name of him that has used them, but such will be omitted unless either their propriety, elegance, or force, or the reputation of their authors afford some extraordinary reason for their reception. Words used in burlesque and familiar compositions will be likewise mentioned with their proper authorities, such as dudgeon from butler, and leasing from prior, and will be diligently characterized by marks of distinction. Barbarous or impure words and expressions may be branded with some note of infamy, as they are carefully to be eradicated wherever they are found, and they occur too frequently, even in the best writers, as in Pope, in endless error hurled, Tis these that early taint the female soul. In Addison, attend to what a lesser muse indites. And in Dryden, a dreadful quiet fell, and worser far than arms. If this part of the proposal can be well performed, it will be equivalent to the proposal made by Beaulieu to the academicians, that they should review all their polite writers and correct such impurities as might be found in them, that their authority might not contribute at any distant time to the deprivation of the language. With regard to questions of purity or propriety, I was once in doubt whether I should not attribute too much to myself, in attempting to decide them, and whether my province was to extend beyond the proposition of the question, and the display of the suffrages on each side. But I have been since determined, by your lordship's opinion, to interpose my own judgment, and shall therefore endeavour to support what appears to me most consonant to grammar and reason. Ausonius thought that modesty forbade him to plead inability for a task to which Caesar had judged him equal. Curd me posse negum, posse quod ille putat. And, 
I may hope, my lord, that since you, whose authority in our language is so generally acknowledged, have commissioned me to declare my own opinion, I shall be considered as exercising a kind of vicarious jurisdiction, and that the power might have been denied to my own claim, will be readily allowed me as the delegate of your lordship. In citing authorities, on which the credit of every part of this book must depend, it will be proper to observe some obvious rules, such as of preferring writers of the first reputation to those of an inferior rank, of noting the quotations with accuracy, and of selecting, when it can be conveniently done, such sentences as besides their immediate use may give pleasure or instruction, by conveying some elegance of language, or some precept of prudence or piety. It has been asked, on some occasions, who shall judge the judges? And since, with regard to this design, a question may arise by what authority the authorities are selected, it is necessary to obviate it, by declaring that many of the writers whose testimonies will be alleged were selected by Mr. Pope, of whom I may be justified in affirming that were he still alive, solicitous as he was for the success of this work, he would not be displeased that I have undertaken it. It will be proper that the quotations be ranged according to the ages of their authors, and it will afford an agreeable amusement if to the words and phrases which are not part of our own growth the name of the writer who first introduced them can be affixed, and if, to words which are now antiquated, the authority be subjoined of him who last admitted them. Thus, for scathe and buxom, now obsolete, Milton may be cited. The mountain oak stands scathed to heaven. He, with broad sails, winnowed the buxom air. By this method every word will have its history, and the reader will be informed of the gradual changes of the language, and have before his eyes the rise of some words, and the fall of others. But observations so minute and accurate are to be desired, rather than expected, and if use be carefully supplied, curiosity must sometimes bear its disappointments. This, my lord, is my idea of an English dictionary a dictionary by which the pronunciation of our language may be fixed, and its attainment facilitated, by which its purity may be preserved, its use ascertained, and its duration lengthened. And though, perhaps, to correct the language of nations by books of grammar, and amend their manners by discourses of morality, may be tasks equally difficult, yet as it is unavoidable to wish, it is natural likewise to hope that your lordship's patronage may not be wholly lost, that it may contribute to the preservation of ancient and the improvement of modern writers, that it may promote the reformation of those translators who, for want of understanding the characteristical differences of tongues, have formed a chaotic dialect of heterogeneous phrases, and awaken to the care of purer diction some men of genius, whose 
attention to argument makes them negligent of style, or whose rapid imagination, like the Peruvian torrents, when it brings down gold, mingles it with sand. When I survey the plan which I have laid before you, I cannot, my lord, but confess that I am frighted at its extent, and, like the soldiers of Caesar, look on Britain as a new world, which it is almost madness to invade. But I hope that though I should not complete the conquest, I shall at least discover the coast, civilize part of the inhabitants, and make it easy for some other adventurer to proceed further, to reduce them wholly to subjection, and settle them under laws. We are taught by the great Roman orator that every man should propose to himself the highest degree of excellence, but that he may stop with honor at the second or third. Though, therefore, my performance should fall below the excellence of other dictionaries, I may obtain, at least, the praise of having endeavored well, nor shall I think it any reproach to my diligence that I have retired without a triumph from a contest with united academies and long successions of learned compilers. I cannot hope, in the warmest moments, to preserve so much caution through so long a work, as not often to sink into negligence, or to obtain so much knowledge of all its parts, as not frequently to fail by ignorance. I expect that sometimes the desire of accuracy will urge me to superfluities, and sometimes the fear of prolixity betray me to omissions, that, in the extent of such variety, I shall be often bewildered, and, in the mazes of such intricacy, be frequently entangled, that, in one part, refinement will be subtilized beyond exactness, and evidence dilated in another beyond perspicuity. Yet, I do not despair of approbation from those who, knowing the uncertainty of conjecture, the scantiness of knowledge, the fallibility of memory, and the unsteadiness of attention, can compare the causes of error with the means of avoiding it, and the extent of art with the capacity of man. And whatever be the event of my endeavors, I shall not easily regret an attempt which has procured me the honor of appearing thus publicly. My Lord, your Lordship's most obedient and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. End of Part 2 of A Plan for a Dictionary of English Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox, Fall 2007.